Father, we do pray humbly for your blessing as your word is opened and that you give me the, the grace and ability to expound it clearly. That in the Spirit of God, you would take whatever principle you intend for each one and then seal it to their hearts as the word is being spoken. Oh God, send the power of your Spirit today. Let us see Jesus in a fresh new way. In his name we pray. So why did Jesus come into the world? <clears throat> Pretty basic question, isn't it? Why did Jesus leave heaven, become a man, and be born into this world? Well, <clears throat> Jesus himself gives us a really concise and clear statement as to the answer to that question in John 3.17. Jesus said, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. There it is. God sent the Son into the world so that the world might be saved. Now when we say that the world might be saved, we're not saying that each individual member of the human race is going to be saved. That it was, it's never been God's sovereign plan to save every person who's ever lived. He saved those who believe in his Son, those who repent of their sins. But there is an aspect where Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's a worldwide Savior, insofar that Revelation 5 says, He purchased for God men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation on the planet. And so from every quarter of the globe, the north, the south, the east, the west, there's going to be a representative body of people that will be in heaven and in his kingdom for all eternity. So Jesus Christ came on a mission to bring salvation to this world. But of course, for that salvation to be affected, the message of that salvation has to reach the people. So the next question I have is, well, when Jesus was on the earth, what was his plan to get this message out? What was his plan? Was his plan to hold mass evangelistic rallies, sort of like maybe a Billy Graham would, would do today? And we do know that Jesus ministered to the multitudes, didn't he? He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. Thousands upon thousands of people followed him and heard him preach. And it's true that he did minister to the masses, but that wasn't his greatest priority. The Lord's greatest priority was focusing on 12 men who were called apostles. And you see that the, the longer and longer he gets into his ministry and the closer he gets to the cross, the more time he spends away from the masses and developing these men. So his priority was men. It were the apostles that he chose. Remember Luke chapter 6, Jesus spent the whole night in prayer and the following day he called 12 of the disciples whom he named as apostles. Now an apostle is a sent one. One who is sent. So, they're called apostles in Luke chapter 6, but they're never sent out to do anything until Luke chapter 9. So for about a year to a year and a half, these guys were apostles, but they didn't apostle. <laughs> they didn't actually go anywhere. They didn't actually do anything. All they did was they walked around, and they spent time with Jesus, and they watched him, and they heard him. But Jesus' priority was to invest his life into these 12 men. 
Because he told them at the very end of his life, after he had been crucified and been raised from the dead, he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And over in Mark's Gospel, he puts it like this, Go into all the world and preach the Gospel to all creation. Now, can you think of a greater task that has ever been given to 12 men than that one? Basically, he's saying, I want you to go into the entire world, and I want you to reach this entire world with a message of good news that I have died for sins, and that people can have everlasting life if they will repent and turn to me in faith. So go out there. Reach everybody. Reach the ends of the earth. Wow. That is an incredible responsibility. So, how did Jesus train these men? How did he get them ready? How did he prepare them to fulfill the responsibility that he gave them here? And that's really the subject of our text this morning. In Luke chapter 9, we're going to see that Jesus did four things as he trained his men. He called them. He authorized them. He delegated tasks to them. And then he supervised them. Number one, he called his men. Look at Luke chapter 9, verse 1. It says, and he called the twelve together. We'll stop right there. He called the twelve together. There are different aspects of calling, different stages of calling that Jesus would go through with his disciples. He called them to faith. Every one of Jesus' disciples was initially called to faith in him. Remember Matthew's conversion? Matthew's sitting in his tax booth, and Jesus walks up to him and says, follow me. And Matthew left everything. He left his tax booth, and he followed Jesus. Do you remember Philip? Jesus found Philip and said to him, follow me. So there was this crisis point in every one of the disciples' lives where they had to make a decision if they were going to follow Jesus and put their trust in him or not. So the initial call was a call to faith. They had to believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But then secondly, there was a call to permanent discipleship. Permanent discipleship. In Luke chapter 5, we have the story of, of Jesus teaching in a boat off the Lake of Galilee. And when he's done teaching, he tells Peter, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Remember what Peter says to him? He says, Lord, I fished all night. And, and, and Lord, I don't want to be rude here, but I'm the fisherman. You might be a good Bible teacher, but I'm a fisherman, Lord, and I fished all night, and I didn't catch anything. But okay, at your word, I'll do it. Just to humor you. So they launch out into the deep, they let down the nets, and they enclosed such a great quantity of fish that they had to signal to their partners in another boat to come over, and they were loading up the boat with fish till the two boats started to sink. And then you know, remember what Peter does when he comes to the shore? He kneels down before Jesus, and he says, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. He saw who Jesus was. This is no ordinary man. This is the Son of God. And he says, I'm not worthy to even be in your presence. And the Lord says, Don't be afraid. Because from now on, you're going to be catching men. And then the Bible says, they left everything and followed him. 
Now, up until that time, they were part-time followers. They had come to believe in Jesus. And they followed him part of the time, but they had gone back to their trades, back to their fishing business. But at this point, they left everything. They left their nets, their boats, their trade, and they became permanent, full-time followers of Jesus Christ. So first, he called the faith. Secondly, he called a permanent discipleship. And then thirdly, he called them to apostleship. Apostleship. Back in Luke 6, as we just uh, talked about a minute ago, he spent the whole night in prayer. In the morning, he called 12 of his men to him and chose them and named them as apostles. Sent ones. Now, Mark 3.14 puts it this way. And he appointed 12. Number one, so that they would be with him. Number two, that he would send them out to preach. So, he called 12 men. He chose 12 to do two things. Number one, be with him. Number two, be sent out to preach. Remember, an apostle was a sent one. So, the very first thing that they did was just be with Jesus. And so, for about the first year to the first year and a half, all they did was just hang out with him. They lived with him. They traveled with him. They ate meals with him. They watched him as he healed the sick and raised the dead. They heard his sermons. They heard his preaching of the kingdom. They were just taking it in, absorbing it. And then finally, Jesus called them to apostleship where he's going to send them out. So the fourth calling is that of internship. And that's what we find here in Luke chapter 9. He called them to internship. The dictionary definition of internship is a formal program to provide practical experience for beginners in an occupation. Now doesn't that fit to a T what Jesus is doing with his disciples? He's enlisting them into a formal program to provide practical field experience for beginners in an occupation. Oh, what was their occupation? Christian ministry. Preaching, healing, casting out demons, doing the same thing that Jesus did. And then finally, there would be one final call, and that's the call to world evangelization. He's going to eventually call them to go bring this message to the entire world. Over in Acts 1, verse 8, Jesus said to his disciples, but you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you're going to be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Samaria and in Judea and even to the remotest part of the earth. So world evangelization. You're going to be my witnesses to the remotest part of the earth. Now you're probably thinking, well, Brian, that's all well and good. We understand these four different calls, but I'm not an apostle. What in the world does any of that have to do with me? You may not be an apostle, but you have been called to extend the kingdom of Jesus Christ in one way or another. Every single Christian has been called to be involved in one way or another in making Jesus' name great in the earth. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? Why did he choose you? Why did he make you his priesthood, his holy nation? Why are you a people for God's own possession? Well, he tells us, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, every Christian is in the game. 
If you see yourself as a spectator, well, I'll just let Brian do it, or I'll let Kelly do it, or I'll let Michael do it. Those are the guys who know how to witness and get... You've missed it. Every single Christian, in one way or another, is to be involved in spreading the gospel and seeing Jesus' name become great in the earth. So we need to get out of the stands and into the game and get involved. And so I want to challenge you this morning. Accept the call to world evangelization. Now that may extend simply in your neck of the woods, your neighborhood, or your workplace, but do your part to let the, the beautiful, glorious name of Jesus be known. So, the very first thing we see here is that Jesus called his men. He called them over and over to greater and greater experiences of commitment and service of him. Now secondly, we find that Jesus authorized his men. He authorized them. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Not only did he call the twelve together, but then he gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. He gave them power and authority over how many of the demons? All of them. And to heal all diseases. So basically what we find happening is that Jesus took the power and authority that was in himself and he's giving it now to these 12 men so that they can do what he did. Now think with me for just a moment. What were the things that Jesus did over and over and over throughout his ministry? What were the activities that he was engaged in? Was that? Yes, those things, exactly. He preached. He healed, and he cast out demons. What does he tell them to do? Preach the kingdom, heal the sick, cast out demons. So basically what Jesus is doing is he's multiplying himself. Jesus can't be everywhere at the same time. He can minister to a limited number of people. And so in order to get this message of the good news out to more and more people, one final gospel blitz before he leaves Galilee and goes to Jerusalem. Out of grace, he commissions these 12 men to take the same message that he had been preaching and to get it out to all the cities and villages around Galilee. He's multiplying himself. It's almost as though he's creating carbon copies of himself and sending them all over the place to do what he had been doing so that more and more people can hear. And interestingly, in the next chapter, in Luke chapter 10, he's going to do the same thing again but this time not with 12 men, but with 70 men. And he's going to give them authority over demons, he's going to tell them to preach, and he's give, going to give them power to heal the sick. And then when he raises from the dead, he's going to do it again, but not to 12 or not to 70, he's going to do it to his entire church. And he's going to tell them, in my name, cast out demons, in my name, heal the sick, and go preach the gospel to every creature. So this group goes from 1 to 12 to 70, and then to the entire church. And Jesus is multiplying himself through his people. So what he's doing here is he's authorizing them to do what he had been doing. Now, we're told here that he gave them power and authority. And there is a difference between power and authority. Power is the ability to do something. Authority is the right to exercise that ability. And so Jesus says, you guys are my personal representatives. In whatever city or town or village you enter, you represent me. I'm giving you the right to exercise this power, this ability, in order to get these things done. 
Now, how in the world would we apply this today? Let's talk first of all of the, of the idea about casting out demons or having power over demons. Is that only something that was applicable to these 12 men? Or do we still have power over demons today as Christians? Luke 10, 17. When Jesus sent out the 70, so this was in addition to the 12, this is a bigger group. They came back and they're all excited. They said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So, were they subject to the 70 simply because they were nice guys? I mean, why were they subject to them? Because they were using the name of Jesus. They were subject in your name, they said. And over in Mark 16, 17, Jesus said, in my name, you will cast out demons. So, the important thing, when you talk about exercising authority over the satanic realm, is that it cannot be done in your name or in your power. It's done in the name of Jesus Christ. And that name has still been extended to the church for all time. Right? We, we invoke the name of Jesus. When we pray for the sick, we pray in Jesus' name. When we come against Satan or demons that are tormenting people, which I admit doesn't happen very often in my life, but perhaps if I lived in a third world country, I would be faced with this much more often. We still have the privilege and authority to invoke the name of Jesus to come against them and take authority over them. What about healing? God, or Jesus gave them authority over the demons. He also gave them the authority to heal. And I guess there's a lot that can be said about this. I'll just say a couple of things. I do believe God heals today. In fact, one of the gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is the gifts of healing. Gifts of healing. And after a thorough study of the scriptures, I cannot come up with a biblical reason to deny that these gifts have been withdrawn from the church. I can't see in 1 Corinthians 13 a biblical exegetical reason to accept the fact that all of these gifts are still manifest in the church to varying degrees and varying places. So I do believe that God heals today, and I believe that God gives the gift of healing to certain individuals. And that shouldn't freak us out or scare us or intimidate us in any way. The gift of healing is simply that some people, when they pray for the sick, are more effective than others. And notice it's plural, gifts of healing, which have made some Bible scholars believe that some people might have the gift to pray for certain kinds of illness more effectively, and then others have the ability to pray for other kinds of illnesses more effectively. In other words, someone might be able to pray for cancer, and the Lord works through their prayers. And there's a high success rate of people being healed from cancer. Another person might be migraine headaches and another person arthritis. Uh, but he's given the gifts of healings to the body of Christ. But having said that, let me just say this. God doesn't always heal today. God does heal. And he has given the gifts of healings to the body of Christ. But God doesn't always heal. And he didn't even always heal in the first century. Timothy had a stomach ailment. Paul said, take a little wine for your stomach. That wasn't healed. Trophimus, Paul left sick at Miletus. Paul wasn't able to heal Trophimus. Epaphroditus was so sick he almost died. So here are examples, real life examples in the early church of people who weren't healed immediately through the prayer of an apostle. Even. 
You see, there, there are certain attributes of God that we must keep together and keep in tension. God is sovereign, God is wise, and God is good all the time. He's sovereign, he's wise, and he's good. And so we can trust him. Now, I think we probably err on the side of, of not praying in faith for people to be healed. I think that's probably most of us where we're at because we, we've tried, haven't we? And we prayed for people and they didn't get better. And so we've kind of said, well, I guess that just doesn't work. It just doesn't seem to work in my life. I want to encourage you to become more eager and expectant to pray for sick people. I think that we should err on that side. If someone is sick, let's go to them. Let's lay hands on them, like it says in Mark chapter 16. And let's pray. And let's believe that God can and will do something. Now, if the Lord shows us that that was not his intention, well, we accept that. We understand that God is sovereign and has wise plans that we don't understand. But let's not sort of have a cop-out and not even, not even pray about it. Or Our first resource being going to the doctors or the medicine cabinet I think that our first resource should be to go to the Lord in prayer and plead before him our case. So Jesus authorized his men. He called his men. Thirdly, he delegated tasks to his men. And this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning. We're going to talk about the tasks that he delegated to these 12 men. He gave them 12 tasks. I'm sorry, he gave them five tasks. Five different tasks. First of all, they were to preach the kingdom. Look at chapter 9, verse 2. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. That was their number one task. This is why I'm sending you guys. You are to proclaim the kingdom of God. Now this is interesting because when you look through Luke's gospel, you'll find out that Jesus was always proclaiming the kingdom. In Luke chapter 4, verses 42 and 43, Jesus had just spent the whole night healing the sick and laying hands on people. He was probably up late into the night. And then he got up very early the next morning to seek God in a solitary place in prayer. And some of the disciples came, and they didn't want him to leave. They wanted him to stay right there. And Jesus told them this, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So when Jesus talks about the message that God had given him to preach, what does he call it? I must preach the kingdom of God. That's my message. Or over in Luke chapter 8, verse 1, here's a summary statement of Jesus' ministry. It says, Soon afterwards he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching what? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. So what does it mean to preach the kingdom of God? Basically, what that means is that he was preaching salvation. The reason I know that is because when Jesus had this encounter with the rich young ruler, he would say to his disciples, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And what do they respond by saying? Well, then who can be saved? Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God. And they said, well, then who can be saved? The disciples equated salvation with being in the kingdom. So as Jesus was going around preaching the kingdom, he's preaching salvation. Basically what he's doing is he's proclaiming that he is the king, come from heaven, and that he has a kingdom, 
and that is available for them to enter that kingdom, and the entrance requirements are repentance and faith. If they will turn away from their old sinful lifestyle, and if they will embrace him as their king, they can have a part in this kingdom. They can receive everlasting life and forgiveness of sins. And that was good news. That's why it's called the gospel of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom. So the first task that he delegated to them was that they were to go through all the cities and villages of Galilee and they were to proclaim the exact same message that he had been proclaiming, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the King from heaven. And he offers you pardon. All you have to do is lay down your arms of rebellion and wave the white flag of unconditional surrender to his lordship. And if you will surrender to him, come in. you can come into his kingdom and receive all the benefits of that kingdom. And so that was the task that was delegated to these disciples. Now, we can apply this to our own lives because that's still the task that has been delegated to the church. And if you're a Christian, you're a member of that church. How are you doing when it comes to proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom? When was the last time you talked to someone about their soul? About the fact that they need to be saved and that Jesus Christ is the Savior? Has it been over a week? Two weeks? A month? Maybe for some of you it's been years or maybe never. I want to encourage you to ask God to give you an opportunity this week to talk to someone about salvation in Christ and be bold enough to seize that opportunity when it comes. First task, they were to preach the kingdom. Second task, they were to demonstrate compassion. They were to demonstrate compassion. It says in verse 2, he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. Healing. People who are suffering. People who are in pain. Not only did they perform healing, but they also cast out demons of people who were tormented with evil spirits. Isn't it interesting that Jesus has supernatural power, but how does he, how does he manifest that power? He could have simply, you know, jumped off the pinnacle of the temple like Satan told him to do and come down to a soft, cushy landing. And, you know, that could have been a great miracle, but that would have done nobody any particular good who was suffering or hurting. Instead, Jesus used supernatural power to minister to real life, hurting, suffering, pained people, tormented people. He entered into their pain and he sought to relieve it. So, he calls them to demonstrate the same kind of compassion that he had been demonstrating. You know, it's possible for us to preach the gospel of the kingdom, but do it without compassion. And it does little to no good. We need to keep both of those things together, don't we? We need to have the right message, but we need to also have the right heart. We need to have Jesus' message, but we also have to have Jesus' heart when we go out to minister to people. We need to care about the people that we're talking to. There's an old saying that goes, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I think that's so true. If you're going to really minister to somebody, let true care and concern come forth from your life for that person. That may be that if you're witnessing to a homeless person and you find out that they haven't eaten all day, 
Not only do you give them the gospel, but you walk them over to Taco Bell and buy them a couple of burritos. You, you, you do what you can to alleviate their suffering. So, he delegated the task of preaching the kingdom, demonstrating compassion, and also trusting God for their needs. They were to trust God for their needs. Look at verse 3. He said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. He says, Don't take anything. Uh, don't take an extra shirt. Don't take any food. Don't take any money. Go with the clothes on your back, and I'll take care of you. When it's time to eat, there's going to be somebody that's going to provide a meal for you. When it's time to sleep, someone's going to offer you a bed. You'll find out that God's going to take care of your every need, but Jesus was basically thrusting them into a situation where they were forced to learn to depend upon God to take care of them, and they weren't trusting their own resources, but his. So this is like boot camp for his disciples. <laughs> he, he's getting them ready for the Great Commission. And Jesus knows there's going to be times later on where they're going to have nothing. They're going to be without food. They're going to be without a place to stay. They're going to have to know that God's going to take care of them. And so he thrusts them out into a situation where they're forced to depend on God. What an austere situation that we find them facing here. But you know, if Jesus did give them the authority to cast out demons and heal diseases, don't you suppose that some of those people that they were freeing from demons and healing their diseases are going to be so grateful and thankful that they're going to say, hey, please, come stand by my house. I've got an extra bed. Please come on over tonight. We've got some supper. Would you join us for dinner? And I'm sure that's exactly what took place. Over in Matthew 10, verse 8, Jesus told them, freely you received, freely give. So Jesus had freely given them authority over demons and over diseases. And so he said, don't charge for that. Don't take any money with you. And when you get to that city or village, don't tell them, okay, I'll, I'll heal that paralysis if you give me $25. But if you don't come up with $25, forget it. <laughs> don't charge for your services. You've been given that power freely. Give it away freely. And don't you know they could have become rich? How much would someone be willing to give you if you could heal an incurable disease? I wonder. Probably everything they had. Remember the woman with the issue of blood? She had spent everything she had to doctors trying to get better. When people are faced with a life-threatening disease that just seems like it will never end, it's permanent and ongoing, if they have faced the prospect of getting relief from that, they'll, they'll give anything they've got. And so these disciples could have, if they were unethical, they could have become rich. Uh, preying upon the suffering of the people that they're supposed to be ministering to. Now, was Jesus sending them out without anything at all as a permanent lifestyle situation? And we find out that no, that was not the case. This was a temporary situation to train them. We know that because over in Luke chapter 22, verse 35, this is what Jesus said. When I sent you out without money, belt, and bag, and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They said, no, nothing. They found out that God was true to his word. God came through every single time. They didn't lack a thing. And he said to them, but now, who 
Whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. So things are different now. That was a training situation to prepare you to trust in God. You've learned your lesson. Now I'm thrusting you out, and it's okay to take money with you. It's okay to take food. It's okay to take an extra change of clothes. It's even okay to take some form of self-protection from bandits or robbers that may try to harm you. So no, this is a temporary situation. Now, you and I, as servants of Jesus Christ, also need to learn to trust God for our needs. And the difficulty we have here in rich America is that we're so affluent we don't really need to. Isn't that true? There are many people who don't really need to trust God at all because they've got lots of money in the bank. They just go to the bank and get some more money out when they need to. Why do they need to trust God for their daily bread? Now, in other parts of the world, that is not the case whatsoever. But here in America, that's our temptation. You know, it's hard to be a sold-out Christian in the United States. It's much harder, I think, than when you live in some other country of the world. But we need to learn that lesson. And maybe we need to be generous enough givers so that we do need to learn to trust God. So that we can't rely on our resources in the bank. We also need to remember never to enrich ourselves from the suffering of other people. And here I'm afraid that there are many people that do just that. If you watch much Christian TV, which I never do, because I despise so many of the things I see on it, but there are things on there where the gimmicks and the gadgetry of people saying, just do this, put this under your pillow, stand on this thing, touch that, and of course you need to send me this money, because that's seed money, and if I receive that seed money, God's going to multiply it a hundred times. And they prey upon the ignorance of people and the suffering of people wanting so badly to get well. But we ought to never discredit the ministry of Jesus Christ by unethical means like that. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul says that an elder has to be free from the love of money. In 1 Peter 5, he says that he needs to shepherd not for sordid gain, not for sort of gain. In other words, he's not in the ministry for money or what he can get out of it. When I read texts like this, it makes me really glad that I have I own a business and I don't have to take any money at all from the church because at least no one can accuse me of doing that because I've never taken a penny from the church and probably never will. I, I thank God for that. It would be wonderful if there was uh, more pastors who were able to do that because would just decrease all of the accusations that fly from the people of the world. So they were to proclaim the kingdom. They were to demonstrate compassion. They were to trust God for their needs. Fourthly, they were to demonstrate contentment. Look at verse 4. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. So they go into a city, and someone offers them to come and stay at their home. They say, well, I, I'm sorry, all I've got is a barn, but there's fresh hay out there. It's a place for you to stay. You say, great, any place would be better than nothing. So you take the barn, and then somebody else comes along and says, boy, I'm so grateful you healed my, my daughter. Here, I've got this big, wealthy home up on the hill. Why don't you come and stay there? And they, they hear the, the words of Jesus ringing in their ears. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. 
What's the principle behind all of this? They need to be content with what God has provided. Whether it's a beautiful, spacious home with lots of wonderful food to eat and a nice soft bed and pillow, or if it's just a place out in the barn. Whatever God provides, be content. Stay there. Continue to minister to that family for the duration of the time you're in that city. And this is a lesson that we as Christians have to have and understand too, isn't it? Being content. Content with what we have. Would you describe yourself as a content person? Are you a content person? Over in Hebrews 13, verse 5, he says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So why can we be content? Because we know that Jesus is never going to forsake us. And that's really all we ever have to have. Now, if he forsook me, then I, I'm in deep trouble. But as long as Jesus is with me and will not forsake me, then my needs are going to be provided. He's promised that to me. And then the fourth task he delegated to them is that they must pronounce judgment on those who reject the message. Look at verse 5. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So if there are those that don't receive you, shake the dust off your feet, your sandals. And that's going to be a testimony against them. Now there was a custom amongst the Jews in the first century that when they went into, they went on a trip, they went on a journey, and they entered into Gentile territory, and then they came back across the border into Israel again, they would take their robes and their shirts and then shake it, get all the dust off, and then shake the dust off their sandals. And really that was a visual picture of disdain and scorn for the pagan Gentiles. They wanted nothing to do with them. Remember, Jews would have nothing to do with Gentiles. They wouldn't associate with them. They wouldn't talk to them. And so when they came back into their land, they left all that Gentile dust behind. And what basically Jesus is telling his disciples is if you go into one of these Jewish cities and they won't receive you, treat them like a Gentile. Treat them like a pagan. Shake the dust off of your feet as a testimony against them. Basically, they were pronouncing that God will judge you because you will not receive the message of good news that he sent among you today. And here's the thing. Not only must we be honest with the good news, we've got to be honest about the bad news too. Jesus was charging his disciples not only to proclaim the kingdom, they were to pro proclaim judgment against those who wouldn't receive that kingdom. And so we need to be honest enough to tell people, yes, there is a heaven freely offered to you in Jesus Christ, but there is also a hell where if you reject that offer, you will spend eternity. There is either eternal blessing in the kingdom or eternal judgment in a place that God has designed for those who reject his message of good news. We've got to be honest and we've got to have the courage to tell people in a loving way, in a compassionate way, but in a forthright and honest way that there is a heaven and there is a hell. So those are the tasks that Jesus delegated to them. Now there's one final principle I want you to see. Not only did Jesus call them and authorize them, and delegate tasks to them, 
But we also find that he supervised them. He supervised them. Now, in verses 7 through 9, Luke goes off a little bit on an excursion where he's talking about uh, Herod the Tetrarch. And he's talking about how Herod, who is the one who had John the Baptist beheaded, is in turmoil because of a guilty conscience. And he's hearing all these things about Jesus, and he's wondering, who in the world is this guy? Could it be John the Baptist, the guy that I beheaded? Could it be him raised from the dead? If that's true, I'm in big trouble. Or, or maybe it's Elijah. Or maybe it's one of the other prophets that have been raised from the dead. But then, in verse 10, it says, When the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done. Taking them with them, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. Now notice this. Jesus sent them out on this mission. They came back, and what do they do? They give a report. They give an account to Jesus of everything they had done. Why do you suppose Jesus wanted them to come back and give him a report on what had happened? Don't you believe it? it's got to be because he's going to use that to continue to train them and to continue to teach them? They're going to say, well, this happened, Lord, and we didn't really know what to do. And the Lord's going to say, okay, next time you're in that situation, I want you to do this. Lord, we were over here, and this person did that. Okay, this is what I want you to do next time. There's ongoing training and instruction going on from the Master. So he sent them out, but when they came back, he used that as an opportunity to continue to help them grow in their ministry. And you know, that's really a really good way of looking at developing leaders. You call leaders, you delegate authority to a leader, you give them practical field experience where they're actually doing things in ministry. So first, that potential leader watches the senior leader, just like the disciples watch Jesus. They watch his life, they watch how he preaches, they watch how he interacts with people and councils and all of those kinds of things doing with, doing with ministry. And then at some point, the senior leader will call this leader to internship. So he'll call to go with him when he's counseling. Or he'll give him opportunities to preach. Or he'll ask him to minister to a suffering person and to pray for healing. And then as he's doing that, the senior leader is taking opportunity to continue his training and instruction and to continue to teach him. And that's how new leaders are raised up. And Jesus was very wise in the way he went about this. Let's just come to a conclusion this morning by, by remembering the transferable principles that we find here in Luke chapter 9. Yes, it's true, nobody here is an apostle. But we have many Christians here. What are the transferable principles that we find here? We need to remember that every one of us is called to extend Jesus' kingdom. I would encourage you to write down a way on a piece of paper, one thing, one way, that you are going to seek to extend Jesus' kingdom this way. Now, we do that in different ways, according to our giftedness, don't we? Some people are gifted and called to go out and preach on the streets. And some people, they couldn't do that if you put a bullet to their head. But they love their neighbors, and they love to open up their house, 
And so they'll invite their neighbors over to have a, a, an investigative Bible study right in their living room. And they'll provide refreshments and they'll make people feel at home. And they'll call their neighbors throughout the week and see how they're doing. That's another way of extending the kingdom. There, there's an innumerable number of ways that we can go about seeking to make Jesus' name famous and great in the earth. But we've got to think of a way that is consistent with the gifts God has given us and our personalities. And I may even encourage you to stretch yourself. Sometimes you don't feel like you can do a certain thing, but try it. Try something that you don't think you can do. See what happens. You'll be amazed sometimes. So, all of us are called to extend the kingdom. Secondly, Jesus has given us authority over demons, and he's given us authority to pray for sick people, and according to his sovereign pleasure, he will answer some of those prayers, and he'll raise people up. And so we need to be available to the Lord, and we need to be quick and eager to pray for others. And thirdly, we need to be busy about proclaiming the kingdom, showing compassion, trusting God for our needs, being content in our circumstances, and even pronouncing judgment in a compassionate, loving way on those who will not receive this gospel. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that whatever was in this message for a particular people, you would drive it home to their hearts by your power and authority, Lord. Let us learn and be instructed today I pray that you would motivate us, Lord God, to be about your, your work, the master's business this week. I pray that you would show each one what their gifts are and how they can be most effective in extending Jesus' kingdom and making him great in the earth. And we pray this together in the holy name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.